That jarring cacophony tells you you're listening to the Power of Three podcast. The podcast that everyone gets so excited about when it's announced that you just have to pre-order it. And then when it appears on eBay within minutes at a highly inflated price, you just think, what the hell is going on in the world? Oh no, wait a minute. That's not the Power of Three. I'm getting confused with Doctor Who, the collection on Blu-ray. Easily done. It's the ultimate edition of classic series Doctor Who brought together in a lovely box set for the very first time. I'm Kenny Smith and today I'll be your guide for the next hour or so as we speak with a couple of people who are involved with the Blu-ray collection range and they are going to tell me a bit about the work they've put into creating the Season 17 release which is due to be set out into the world next week. I've not had any notices yet to say there's been a delay in its release so, fingers crossed, we can all have a wee pre-Christmas treat with Tom Baker, Lala Ward and K9. Well, when he does appear. When season 17 was first announced as coming to Blu-ray, we did an episode talking about our memories of the original stories, where myself and John Bolan were at the time, and I have to admit I'm actually getting really excited to get my hands on this set, as it was the first series of Doctor Who that I remember watching from start to finish when I was five back in 1979 and had only just started primary school. But hey, you're not here to listen to me waffling on about season 17. But if you do, you can always look up episode 83, which is titled SPAC OFF. You want to hear about the clever, talented people who've made this Blu-ray release. So let's start off by finding out about the picture restoration and how it's come on over the years since the DVD range ended and the Blu-rays began. I was delighted when Peter Crocker took time out from a busy day restoring Archive TV, literally it was running in the background, to have an exclusive conversation with the Power of Three about his work. And there's a bit of a surprise ahead, as I find out that something that wasn't vid-fired in the past to restore its video look could probably be so now when it comes to Blu-ray. Yay! Yes, I'm Peter Crocker and I do the picture restoration on the Doctor Who Blu-ray releases. It's not easy to say, is it? No, no, I haven't got my teeth in probably yet. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have a wee chat with The Power of Three. I suppose when the Blu-ray range began, it might have come as a bit of a surprise, given that I'd imagine that you'd have finished on the DVDs and thought, that's it, job done, unless missing episodes show up. Yes, um, I don't think it was a great surprise to me. The only thing that surprised me was it took uh, the BBC quite a long time to decide that it was a path that they wanted to go down. Because around the time that we were getting to the end of the DVD releases, we had a meeting, as did various other parties, with the uh, the top executives at uh, BBC um, worldwide at the time. And they were saying, well, what can we do next? And And basically what we said is, well we can start again and we, we can improve everything. We can add things. We can make things more definitive. Um, and the one thing that we said that they should avoid like the plague is just repackaging things. Um, I think, you know, with, without naming any names at all, obviously, I, th- I think there are, there are some people in every area of business who, who think that Doctor Who fans and, and other well, fans of anything really. It doesn't have to be even a TV program. You, you know, it could, could be fans of motor cars. You know, if you if you put the right badge on something or the right packaging, people will just lap it up and buy it because they'll collect anything, won't they? And we were very much of the opinion that no, Doctor Who fans are not to be taken advantage of like that. And we could go around and do them all again, but not by simply repackaging them um, and putting you know putting exactly the same thing on on Blu-ray. There, there would have to be some added value both in term, in in terms of quality and also the additional content that was there and that was in 2013 i think that meeting uh, 2013 or 2014 and it took a while to come about simply because i think there was a crisis of confidence in in, in the business generally about physical media because um, uh, um, at the start of the noughties, everybody was talking about, well, it's, everything's going to be streaming. No one wants to buy anything. Everyone will just stream and be happy with that, which um, doesn't really work for the mindset of most ardent fans of anything or collectors, because 
you can't proudly display a, you know, um, a streaming device on your shelves and say, there's my collection. Uh, people don't want to do that. You know, they, they actually want to have something and they want to own it. And also with streaming, you're completely at the whim of rights issues. So if somewhere down the line, the rights situation changes and something is no longer licensable or affordable, it, it can just disappear. And you, you might go and to stream something and even if you paid for it, it's not there anymore. So, so, so we, we were, you know, we were confident that there would always be uh, a market, possibly niche, possibly niche enough to make the items a little bit more expensive than, you know, some mass market things. But nevertheless, there was always going to be a market there, and I think history's borne that out. And and eventually, although it, you know, it took, um, you know, quite a few years. And, and probably the uh, the failure of the BBC store had a little bit to do with it as well. The, you know, the realization that actually there is still something worth doing here. So so we untwiddled our thumbs and uh, and started getting on with it again. How far had technology moved on between doing, for example, robot for DVD, and then when you came back to do it again for Blu-ray release? I just use that one as an example since mm. it was all shot on video originally. And how sure. much more can you sort of pull out of it? I'm tempted to say massive. I mean, certain certain tools of uh, that, that we've got available now have improved massively. There, there are there are certain things that we can now do that we couldn't do then, uh, and there are things that we could do then, but we can now do an awful lot better or more easily. So, probably when we were doing robot, something like robot for DVD, it really was there was very little other than grading the images nicely and sort of evening out uh, sort of lighting variations between cameras um, at the time. And that was generally done at that time by Jonathan Wood at the BBC upstream of me. And going through and fixing dropouts for the most part. And another little you know, picture glitches, uh, a little bit of CSO tidying up, that sort of thing. Uh, but it was quite tedious and laborious to do. Whereas now it's a little easier it's a, you know, it's still that sort of thing still tends to be laborious, but um, the tools we have are, are rather more both powerful, but at the same time nuanced in what can be achieved. When we were doing the DVDs, it's long ago that most people were still watching on big boxy cathode ray tube television sets, um, albeit widescreen ones and flat screens, plasmas, LCDs were just were just coming in and were still really quite expensive and that changed of course so you know over the time that we were coming towards the end of the dvd range more and more people were watching on on big flat screens and we had to pay a little bit of attention to trying to make things look as good as possible on those but i think that's one of the biggest differences between the dvds and blu-rays is now the expectation is that instead of someone watching on a prop possibly 28 inch or you know uh, you know if they were well off a 32 inch CRT set, uh, which would be very forgiving and uh, of the old analog material. Most people, especially now, I would say most people are watching on a, a flat screen TV that's at least 55 inches. Uh, in, in a, a lot of people are watching on 65 and some people 75 plus. And the, I think the biggest challenge is taking the old material and it not looking crap. Sometimes, you know, so, so, sometimes the, the idea is that we're trying to improve things and and of course that's that is true but when your starting point is for the most part an analog television program the tape of which is 40 or 50 years old or even it might even be a film recording of a tape that, that no longer exists the, the biggest challenge is actually just making it look as good as it does in people's mind's eye from their memories of watching it on a, on a 20 26 inch CRT set in the 1960s or 1970s and that's quite difficult actually it's quite tricky. So when you're doing these when you're remastering are you going back to the original tapes and that you had for example again using robots going back to the tapes that are in the archive or do you work from where you left the DVD masters? For the, for the, for the most part I, I tend to start with the DVD masters because you know, without going in, into any uh, any great sort of um, technical or or uh, you know commercially confidential things, the budgets available for the Blu-ray sets on a per episode basis um, are actually lower than they were for the DVDs. 
the, you know, the, it would be lovely to be able to go back to square one, but the, the, the whole the whole business model of the releases would probably fall, you know fall apart if if we had to do that. Plus, it would take a lot longer as well. So, so it's a case of not reinventing not reinventing the wheel or you know doing work you've already done. That said, in many cases, I go back and I go back to the source tapes. So, so graded and usually with a small amount of noise reduction on, effectively the source tape, the source tape that I started with for the DVDs, because sometimes the fixes that I will have done in 2006 or 2007 were done with the best tool, tools available, but I can do better now, but I, I can't undo the fix that I've already done. So the only way I can improve it is actually to go back to square one. And so it, it's often, that's often the case with film inserts, the tools for improving and manipulating the film. Um, is uh, are much better now than they were then, so, uh, or and in some cases uh, it wasn't really done. So you know, for the DVDs, so uh, I'll go back to the the source material for those. But but generally, the starting point is the DVD master. Some of the work you've achieved so far with what you've got with the the quality material, the archival stuff, has been incredible. And then I suppose when you get something like the season nineteen film trims or film inserts all existing. It's just quite incredible what you can do with those. It must sometimes take your own breath away. It's brilliant when we've got the original film inserts for uh, for any any stories, because for the most part, we don't. And the quality differential is just absolutely immense. Not only because the inherent film quality means that we can actually have things in true high definition on Blu-ray, but also the technology to transfer the films was at best okay in the in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s and in some cases it was, was pretty atrocious because you know as with any large organization it was, it was a fairly random thing which bit of equipment a film was transferred on and even as late as 1983 uh, we were still having films transferred for Doctor Who episodes on a device called a polygon telecine which blended fields together and it's, it's effectively burning out of phase images into an ordinary program and it's incredibly difficult to tease out and fix and while the old type of television that people watched the sets they had at home they were reasonably forgiving of that sort of thing on the tvs we all have now they're extremely unforgiving of it it looks terrible so where we're able to replace a film like that as will be the case with the five doctors when we get to it, that uh, that makes a massive difference because on the original transmission that was a polygon telecine, um, and the film inserts. If you uh, if you if people look at off-air recordings, because um, I can't, remember, I think perhaps I'm not sure if the the original VHS release of that might have been just straight from the transmission master. So if people have that that might show how awful the film looks in the five doctors originally but of course for this special edition on vhs and especially for the dvd the films were already being replaced at that time so um, i think they're, they're a little bit better but it's 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 brilliant when we can do that and of course for season 19 there was a there's an awful lot of film surviving for that which uh, which was lovely it's always a nice technical challenge as well to have to replace the any video effects that were overlaid on that so on things like Castrovalvi, you had the Masters trap, I think, where the TARDIS is in the field and there's all sorts of very 80s computer-generated flashing lights going around and about the place. And of course, they're not on the film. So all you have to do is just analyse very carefully what the original looked like and reproduce it, that effect on the new film. But the effect has to be resized as well because the uh, we get more image on the on the new film transfers. So to a large extent, we're actually remaking the original programme from scratch. Uh, that's the sort of challenge which is um, it, it's both great fun, but also uh, extremely irksome <laughs> because it's always, always very, it's always very time consuming. And Doctor Who fans being Doctor Who fans, you know, uh, if we get things wrong or, or make a wrong decision and it doesn't look right, then, um, then we, we, we rightly get it in the neck, which is fair enough. The other thing about season 19 is, in some respects, it's a shame we did it as early in the range as we did with that amount of film, because uh, when it came out, the grading tools that we had available to us uh, for that weren't as good as they've become just over, uh, even even in the last couple of years. And 
we could have also probably done with six months to work on it rather than rather than the standard three because of you know um, the amount of grading that has to be done on that amount of film as well as as well as the restoration because it, it's always covered in dirt and speckles particularly as that film's now getting on 40 years old it's it's a mammoth task and it's you know it's very easy to absorb a hard job on one story in a season like that where you're having to put a lot more into it but when it's almost every story in the season it you know something has to give and in that case it was mostly sleep <laughs> oh well i thought it would uh, come out great i think it's a fantastic job. Yeah, it looks it looks good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, just just the, de- the extra definition and the vibrancy of the film that you uh, get. It's you know, it, it it is great. And it, and if you have, you know, if you're stuck with something like in the other seasons or where we don't have the original film and, and we we're just stuck with what was on the tape from the seventies or eighties, um, you know, we'll still make a good fist of it, and your your eyes do adjust to it, and it looks okay. But blimey, if, if you suddenly get some genuine HD material uh, in there, it it really it really does look great. I suppose mm. that one of the most technically challenging things you've done to date must have been season eight, particularly getting, mm. particularly when you've got all the the CSO fringing and such likes, and to have that all pulled in, it just looks and and the color. When you've had the, the color conversion from America to have all that, it looks absolutely amazing. It's, it's just, I've gone back and watched it and just gone, wow, that must really please you the fact that technology is there at last to be able to do that. Yes, yes, I think I think that's probably the uh, it was it was certainly the hardest season for me um, so far, simply because it used every bit of trickery that we've invented over the years, and a lot of, a lot of it is is almost like an optical illusion. Um, and I, I often describe myself, what I do, as being a pixel mangler, uh, because from a from a, a purity point of view, you know, thing, things are not as they originally were. But to come back to what I said earlier about trying to make it look good on modern televisions, it's really all about that. It's it's uh, it, the idea is people watch it, and you know, I don't want people to watch something like Terror of the Autons or The Mind of Evil. Or colony in space, and think, oh, I'm I'm actually watching a film recording here. Unless they're thinking about it, I want them to just enjoy the story and how it's got to look the way it does is a secondary issue. And to that extent, I think with the restoration work that I do, it's a bit like a, it's a bit like a special effects designer. The best special effects are the ones that you actually don't even realise are special effects. Mike Tucker often says it's about model work as well. He says the best models are the ones that you, you think are real sets. So if, so if people become aware of the restoration to an extent, I've failed or fallen short because the idea is that you know, it should be transparent and you shouldn't even be aware that that there were issues there to be sorted out. Yeah, because I think yeah. Vidfire is just magic. It still is incredible just watching well, these sequences. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, it sort of, it sort of works. It, it, it works on that sort of, sort of psychological level. And some people don't like it, which I totally understand. And I think that I think the reason, if it works, the reason it works is because we tend to carefully apply it only to material that was originally shot with video cameras, and all of the other characteristics of the picture sort of fit with it looking like video. So putting it in reverse, um, filmizing things shot in the 1970s, particularly in the 1970s and 60s, 60s with video cameras, doesn't make things look really like film because you've still got things like the image, image lag when a camera passes a, a bright object, like a flaming torch. You don't get that on film. There are other similar lighting characteristics that sort of, sort of give the game away a bit. So, yeah, it's... it's it's just it is a, it is a psychological psychological thing. The, it would be nice if we could get the original line structure out of the film recording, so Vitify wasn't necessary. And we have been doing some experimental work on that recently, because of getting sort of high resolution sort of 2K scans of, of episodes. Sometimes you can see the line structure, but uh, in reality, I don't think that's ever something that's going to be practical to do because the. The, the film recordings were intentionally blurred a little bit 
when they were made to stop moiré patterning happening when they were shown again on television. You know, that fizzy, fizzy pattern when people wear checked shirts and, and a terrible colour interference. So, so, you know, yes, we, we have been looking at that, but, it, you know, my suspicion is that's that's always going to elude us. It's, it'll be something that, you know, we'll get 25% of the way there, but the other 75% will mess the picture up so horribly that it'll you know, make it not a not a feasible proposition. But Vidfire works sort of, you know, reasonably well in itself. There's still a little bit of double imaging locked in, but the the less motion there is, the less the less problematic the double imaging is. And and it sort of sells it as being having that that smoothness. So a lot of the time, if the original film recording is a good enough quality, it, it sells itself quite persuasively that it is video. As I remember when it came to the DVD range, I think it was a couple of episodes of the Time Meddler were un- mm. just they just weren't of a quality to yeah. able to vidfire. I mean, has technology moved on to a point where things could perhaps be done with these, or is it are they still? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Very much, very much so with that because. When when we did the time meddler the first time, the the main problem was the physical condition of the films, and episode I think it was yeah I think it was episode three had a an awful lot of tramline scratches on it. Um, nothing as bad as the um, the lion, um, mind you, that's not a tramline scratch. That's, that's an enormous crease. But as I recall, there there are about sort of you know five or six or seven or eight. Uh, white white tram uh, tram line scratches going down it or was it might, might be black you know, going back a long time anyway it doesn't matter but th- there's a lot of scratches there and at the time it was really the first generation of scratch repair tools because with a scratch if if it if it moves if it's moving about you've got a reasonable chance of finding a frame you know you know two two or three frames either side where the picture information hasn't changed that much and you've got some real pixels that you can actually fill in and patch the patch the gap where the where the scratch is but a lot of the time the scratches don't move enough for that so you uh, so all you can do is fill in from the sides and then you're guessing or the software is guessing what it should be and it's the sort of thing where it's very easy to get away with on a still if you've got a still you know still a still image that's scratched you can photoshop in from the side and clone the details and it looks fine but if you if you've got an image which is moving 25 frames a second and you try and do that you'll get a sort of horrible bubbling effect where the scratch was because the repair is never in exactly the same place or with the exact same brightness or or contrast so it's really it's, it's probably one of the most difficult things to fix in restoration but over the years it's uh, you know it's a common problem uh, so the um, the tools are now sufficiently advanced that i think would be able to make you a very good shot at doing the time meddler for comparison there were, there were a couple of episodes especially episode five of enemy of the world was at least as badly scratched as the time meddler if not worse and we got away with that so I think, yeah, so I, th- I think there's a good chance that when we get round to it eventually, the time level will be good enough to be vidfied, which is bad news for the people who hate vidfire. <laughs> love it. I love it. So let's talk a wee bit about season 17 as it's the next yeah. example of your work. Were there any particular problems for this or any highlights for you personally going through it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah well, the, the, I mean, the highlight was, uh, yeah, was, it, was it, it, I think it's just a fun se- series. When it went out originally, I was I was sixteen. Yeah, I was sixteen years old, and uh, and I hated it for the most part. But looking back, watching it now as uh, someone in his late fifties, I can I can see that everything that was wrong with the uh, season seventeen when I was sixteen years old was the fact that I was sixteen, and even the ones that a lot of people still like to hate, like the Horns of Nymon. It's you know that it's not great television. But it's but it's definitely fun television. I think I think it's a great season, and there's you know um, all the stories have got something going for it. And the the bit the things that really make me laugh at, laugh most now are the uh, things that I absolutely cringed and hated at the time. In terms of the restoration, for the most part they're fairly standard, uh, without too many challenges. One of the episodes of Creature from the Pit which had some quite bad two inch scratching on it, which I remember 
being a bit of a pain to sort out for the for the DVD. And you know, I've, I've probably spent at least as long, if not longer, fixing additional little, little bits of scratches on the tape that you know were missed when we did, did the DVD. And, and hopefully, it's fairly close to being perfect now. It won't be. You know, there'll still be an occasional little thing that's been missed, but hopefully, they're microscopic and not the sort of thing that you know a casual viewer or even a, even someone who's watching it fairly closely but doesn't have engineered eyes would um, would spot. I think the main thing that was difficult with season 17 is the film inserts, tra so the film transfers that were done in 1979 were very poor by, well, even by the standards of the time, they were not great. And particularly Destiny of the Daleks and City of Death, they're what's, they're, they have what we call rubbery telecine transfers. And that's where the, the film is sort of slightly warped in the gate uh, of the telecine machine. And that means that the, um, best to describe it uh, but it's, it's just rubbery I mean rubbery, that's why, it's, that's why it's, they're called rubbery pictures it describes it quite well a, so, um, it, it, it really knackers the representation of detail because the each each video image is made of two fields which is where you get the 50 images per second of, of video from uh, and vidfire replicates and, and produces two different fields from different points of time on a film transfer if you take each field, uh, upper field and lower field, that, that comprises odd numbers and even numbers that comprise the, the whole picture, the, uh, the, the picture detail in, say, in line, in line four should represent exactly what was on the film between lines three and five. But if you've, if you've got a, a, a rubbery film transfer, in the time between the first field and the second field being captured by the telecine, if the film has moved slightly or or is just slightly bent in the gate of the telecine, the, the detail that should have been on line four might have actually moved to line six or three. Uh, and you end up with something which is actually really low in the, the detail representation is very poor and it's almost impossible to get that back. Um, although, you know, uh, with the tools we've got now, I've had a go. <laughs> it's one of those things where you would have to probably watch the DVD and the Blu-ray side by side to actually see the difference. And I think if people did that, and I don't recommend they do because it would be an absolute pain and difficult to do, but I think you would definitely see a difference. So there is an improvement, but I, I just I just hope people, in, in a way, I hope people really aren't aware how awful the film inserts were originally. I think that's the thing. If people look at it and think, oh, this film doesn't look too bad then you know job done but uh, it was quite it was quite a shock even even going back to the um, to the dvd master and seeing what that looked like because i can't remember what year that came out it must have been a fairly early one i think there was so much that would have you know would have fixed you know if it had been 10 years later towards the end of the range but i, th I think it, i think it looks okay I, I i don't think there's anything in it that will distract so that's that's good Excellent. So what's been your personal highlight and of the things that you've achieved? What's been the single most thing that you're proud of, of the releases to date? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, it, cha it changes all the time. I, th I think, although I don't think it's the best thing we've, that, that we've done in terms of the end result, simply because, you know, it really is a case of you can't make yourself burst out of a sow's ear. But, but it would probably be the mind of evil because starting from something that was you know, only available in black and white and hadn't been seen in colour anywhere in the world since, the, since about, something about 1976 in, in or 77 in America. Yes, you know, the, the colour recovery you know, varies from episode to episode uh, and you know, in some of it strong, is, is stronger than others. But um, you know, with a lot of manual work as well, I think we, you know, we, we did in the end get, a, get it acceptable in colour. And when it was shown from the DVD, for the DVD master at the National Film Theatre, um, I mentioned to Tim Coombe, the director, that there were quite a lot of people who maintained that black and white suited it and it looked more noirish and it was actually better in black and white. And very humorously dismissive of that idea, and he was—he was actually—he he, he said it was very much made with um, relatively recent adoption of for BBC One of, of, of colour television in mind. And you know, at the time it was being filmed, he, he had absolutely no 
thoughts whatsoever of it looking good in black and white. It was it was all about taking advantage of the colour and making a good a good colour colour program. And he was delighted that it was it was back in colour. And I think we got it looking even better for the Blu-ray. And yeah, I, I dare say, um, in you know, in, in another ten years, it could be probably be made even better again by. You know, putting more time and effort into it, but uh, although it won't be me doing that then, because I'll be retired. But, <laughs> but that'll be that, that. That'll be nice. I, I look forward to the day when I can uh, I can I can watch things and uh, and enjoy them with uh, and, and someone else has put in the legwork and and hopefully you know, Im- improved on what I do because because it will always improve. Peter, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to have a chat. So I better let you return to whatever it is you're restoring next because I haven't a clue so I'm well, sure also, well, uh, well I'll, I'll, I'll give you a tea I'll give you I'll give you a little tea because it is actually it's actually not Doctor Who related anyway you know what I'm working on at the moment hopefully people will be able to watch on telly at Christmas and hopefully they'll enjoy fascinating <laughs> okay I, I will have to drop you an email nearer the time to find out what it is if I haven't worked it out yet I think everyone will work it out because it'll 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 have a, it'll have at least a little fanfare. I think it's a bit of it's a bit of um, it's a bit of comedy. It's a bit of colour recovered comedy for people to enjoy at uh, at Christmas or New Year, depending on when it's uh, when it's watched. But yeah, brilliant. Thanks again, Peter. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, huge thanks to Peter. And I think what he was talking about is the restored Markham and Wise which will be shown on BBC Two this Christmas, which was located as a black and white film print, but has had the colour restored and then vid-fired to give it the look of the original videotape, just as he would do on Doctor Who stuff. But Peter's not the only person involved with the range of Blu-rays who's joining us today. We're now going to have a chat with Richard Bignall, who you may know as a member of the fabulous original Time Team in Doctor Who magazine, along with Clayton Hickman, Peter Ware and Jack Rayner. God, they were brilliant. Richard is also the editor of the fabulous magazine of Doctor Who Research and Restoration, Nothing at the End of the Lane, a magazine I highly recommend you get if you have an interest in Doctor Who from the past and how it's been recovered, restored and recorded in all manner of media. My name is Richard Bignall. I work on the Blu-ray collections for the BBC Studios uh, primarily looking after the PDF archive, but also doing other bits and pieces of research. And as well as that, I've been editing sort of nothing at the end of the lane for the past 20 odd years. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to have you on. It's funny how we've been in sort of corresponding for the best part of something like 20 odd years, but never actually spoken in person, which is no, bizarre. Man. But that's the wonders <laughs> of Zoom. So thank you so much for coming on for a wee chat today. I suppose it'd be fair to say that once the DVD collection was done, you probably thought, that's it, everything's done. And then, lo and behold, was that a wee bit of a surprise when you got the call to say, here's what we're doing with the Blu-ray collection? Yeah, largely. Yeah, you're right. The the DVD sort of collection gradually petered out. I was there from reasonably early days and got on board with that probably around the time of the Aztec Dalek invasion of Earth, around about that time, so 2001, 2002, I think, something like that. And that came off the back of the old BBC discussion boards that used to be up and running many years ago that some people may remember. And, yeah, we we worked our way through the DVDs, and then it sort of gradually thinned out and got towards the end, so everyone was sort of putting their feet up. There was the odd little one coming here and there, um, like the underwater menace and things like that, the odd one or two to, to keep the, the interest running and things happening. And then all of a sudden we got told that the, the Blu-rays, which had been the Blu-ray collections, which had been talked about for a while and thought of a possibility as a while, but nothing was really coming off of it, uh, uh, suddenly were going to be a reality. Initially, it it essentially was just the one to begin with, just to see dip our toe in the water, although we were sort of planning further ahead than that. But um, at the time, BBC Studios, I don't think, wanted to commission any more than the first one because they just wanted to see whether or not it was a viable product or not. Because obviously, if you're re-releasing stuff yet again in a different package, ideally, I guess, is only certainly to a, a, a salesman, 
there's only certain, so many times you can do that before the um, resistance starts coming in to actually paying out any more money for the same product. So. so that was you, was that you off to the written archives or did you have a fair bit of it already? No, it meant doing it all from scratch. When the whole idea of putting PDF archives on the Blu-ray came up, it was something we had considered earlier for the DVDs, and it was something that I mooted about 10 years previous, um, when we were probably sort of half, two-thirds way through the range of, of DVDs. But there were lots of potential complications with doing it at that time, and I don't think the budget was necessarily there to look after that either. But this came up as an idea again when we were looking for things to do with the Blu-rays to make them different from the, the DVDs that had gone before. Now, I'd been going to the written archives since probably the mid-90s. And back then, the only way that you could get anything was to get photocopies of it, which you had to pay for. Um, so I'd, I'd amassed quite a few of those over the years, but ideally we wanted to be in a position where we could do something better than that, present them in a better way. Um, the trouble is that those early, that early stage, we didn't really know what we were going to be allowed to do or how we were going to do it. So season 12, uh, the very first one we did, actually started off with me sitting there in the archive taking photographs of the documents. And then Andrew Mark Thompson helped out a great deal on that particular release by tidying them all up and making them look a, a little bit more presentable um, and taking the the rather nasty colour cars you used to get off the fluorescent lights that were in the archive, taking those off of them and, and tidying those up. But ideally, we wanted to get to a position where I could go in and actually scan the documents. Now, strictly speaking, you're not supposed to do that. They have a no-scan policy. You can go in, you can make photocopies, you can take notes, you can take photographs now, which they didn't used to allow, um, but scanning is a, a no-no. So we had to get special permission uh, in order to do it. But once they've, they gave the permission, they saw what we were doing, what we were trying to do, they were more than happy to let us just get on with it. And the staff down the, the archive has been absolutely marvellous. So for each release, it's a matter of me going to the archive and literally spending a week there, five days, solid, absolutely solid, sitting there doing nothing but scanning one thing after another and sending myself completely gaga in the process. But at the same time, I would imagine every now and again, you find something you're just like, wow, and just little bits of trivia. I mean, the fact that you uncovered the April Walker information a good few years back, the one that nobody thought we'd ever find out, and you got it. Yeah. Well, that, yes, that came from the archive. Actually, it was David Brunt who managed to find that information because he was doing the production subtitles on the DVD for Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And I remember getting an email suddenly from him going, there appears to be some documentation here, which might suggest who the original Sarah Jane Smith was. And it's been sitting there in the file all the time, but everyone's missed it. So he told me about April Walker. I immediately got in contact with the archive. They pulled out her. Um, each actor and actress that has worked for the BBC has a, has a file with, usually with their contracts in and uh, contact information and stuff like that. Um, so they pulled out that information and there was about a dozen or so documents there relating to her contract. So we were able to verify that. But yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting thing to do. The production files are the most interesting thing, obviously, because you're going into them and you literally do not know what's going to be in them from one to another. Some are really really thin and scant and don't contain an awful lot of interest some are really really thick and chunky some you might have multiple files for we are really lucky with Doctor Who that only a handful of stories have pretty much no representation uh, as far as paperwork goes at all in the archive you look at other programs long-running BBC programs Z cars, even things like Blake 7, you know, they only have a handful of files relating to those programs. So we are enormously fortunate with Doctor Who. Um, so you, you go through those, and my process is that I basically 
just copy or scan as much as I can. I'm not really doing much of an evaluation at that particular point because that can be done later. Um, there simply isn't the time for that. So I will go in and I will scan as much as possible. But obviously you're, you're looking, at the stuff, looking at the stuff as it comes up and uh, seeing what might be of interest. So, so the production files are really interesting. There are lots of other files that are really interesting as well. Scripts are the most boring thing to do in the world <laughs> because it literally, you're not really looking at anything. You are literally one scan after another as quickly as possible. And certainly with scripts, by the time they started getting into the 1980s, prior to the 80s, in the 60s and 70s, um, you'd get a script and one scene would follow directly on from another on the page. So a, a script might be 40 pages long, 50 pages long. By the time you get into the 1980s, they do it slightly differently. So every time there's a new scene or a new sequence, it will have a brand new page. So, uh, and if it's a little film sequence of, I don't know, a spaceship going past and the line is a spaceship goes past, that would be all that there is on the page. So suddenly your page count goes up from something like 40-odd pages, 40, 50 pages of script, to in some cases 120. So you, you're sitting there sort of banging through page after page after page trying to get the scripts done. So they are very tedious to do um, because we have to do them all by hand because they are archived documents. We're not allowed to use a document scanner. So they've all got to be put onto the scanner one page at a time, scanned one page at a time onto the next one. So usually in the course of a week, five days or so that I'm there, I'll usually average something in the region of about 800 to 1,000 scans a day. Now, some of that will be stuff that we can't use. Some of it will prove to be useful anyway for maybe some of the features we're doing because it will provide us with information and leads as to where various people are that we want to talk to, but we can't actually use that on the um, PDF archive itself because um, the dreaded GDPR comes into, into play with this as well. So. Uh, we do have to be careful with various things. Of course. We don't want to get uh, too many uh, personal details or how much people get paid getting out there. No, so exactly. yeah, so yeah. Don't want to, I don't want to annoy the artists just in case they retrospectively find out somebody was getting paid more or furniture costs more. Or the cameraman going with the Diana Rigg Avengers tale. Of all the releases that we've had so far, what have been some of your favourite facts that you've discovered? Oh, goodness. Usually it's really, really arcane, trivial stuff. It's just interesting little things like, you know, finding out names of, <laughs> of animals that are used on set or, or things like that. It can be really daft stuff like that. It, it's also true, though, as well, that as you go through the files, sometimes you, you will find things that you don't expect to find. So in terms of story like the smugglers there is no production file for the smugglers in the bbc archive that that never made it through the system didn't come down yet there was a file that we found which uh, several years back which is just entitled bbc bristol and that file contains documents for the smugglers so it contains things like the film diary and the the film schedule and various paperwork related to some of the extras that we used down that way. So it, it's really nice to be able to sort of suddenly find something that relates to a story or, or something happening that you know is going to be really thin somewhere else. So you do turn up nice things like that. Sometimes it's surprising what isn't there more than what is. Very surprising when we went through the files for Time Flight to find that Concord doesn't get a mention, apart from, I think, in one document. There is nothing to, to relate it to the hire of Concord and the use of it and the fact that they had to change planes because one broke down and they had to put the one that they were going to use into service. There's none of that at all. I'd sort of expected in the when we did Black Orchid that there might be something in there related to the accident that stuntman Gareth Milne had where he uh, fell off the roof and semi-missed the boxes that he was supposed to land on, which was quite a, a bad accident, but there's absolutely nothing for that at all. So it, it really is strange what is kept and what is not. 
you know, as, as I said previously, some files you will have an awful lot of stuff kept for. Others, um, such as in season 17, which is coming up, The Nightmare of Eden is a really thin file. I think there was about 90 documents in that, and that was all, which is quite slight for a, a program of that particular era. Yeah, I think the the attention that you pay to detail is great because, I mean, as you know, I do love my trivia and just these really obscure, ridiculous things that nobody else cares about. I mean, it's things that, I mean, that I get excited by, just, you know, like minor details that have been nothing at the end of the lane. And it's like, oh, my wife's like, oh, what's wrong? And, and I'll tell her, and she's like, what? The not we just do not get it. Um, but no, I thank, I thank you for, for all that you do because it's, it is very much appreciated. Um, you mentioned season 17 there. You posted on Twitter a wee breakdown of some of the things that are coming up. Could you give us a few wee highlights from there just before the Blu-ray comes out? Yeah, season 17 has by far and away the largest archive that we've done thus far. I think previous season we did, season 24, was the largest one to date at that particular time, which was just over 4,000 pages worth of information. This one has now amounted, I think if I've got the figure right, 6,869 pages, which is a, it's a huge amount. So we've, we've got in there all, all the usual things that we will put in there, um, but we've included other stuff as well. So we knew fairly early on we were going to be including Genesis of the Daleks, the LP, because that tied in very much, obviously, with Destiny, not only in terms of the Daleks and Davros, but also their, their marketing was tied in with Destiny as well, because that's when it started to be advertised, to tie in with that. So we've included a set of paperwork relating to the LP as well, um, which includes the little narration script that was used, um, together with uh, various other bits and pieces relating to that. I've also included in there some additional material related to Doctor Who, but related to other programs and other things that were using Doctor Who. So it, it's it sort of broadened it out slightly from just the um, individual stories that we're, we're going through. We've started to spend some time as well, or I started to spend some time contacting production designers to see whether or not they've kept anything of note. So we've got, uh, it's only a little thing, but we've got a, um, a, an image, uh, a drawing that um, Richard McMahon Smith was able to find and send through from City of Death, his design for the Chateau set. So, you know, we're, we're constantly sort of trying to dig, dig through and find all the extra bits and pieces. We've got a nice new image of the storyboards, the colour storyboards that Ian Schoons did for City of Death. That's now owned by Mike Tucker. And uh, Mike has um, very kindly, um, we've been able to sort out a photograph of that. So we were able to include, so include a nice nice image of that as well. Um, but yeah, this is a, this is a, a big archive. It'll be interesting to see whether or not we ever, we ever tip over this one or not. I noticed that, sadly, the original A Gamble With Time outline seems to have disappeared. It does, yes. People will have noticed that there is something called A Gamble With Time on there. Unfortunately, this is not David Fisher's original script, which is the sort of Bulldog Drummond type one. This is a rehearsal script for, set of rehearsal scripts for the televised version of City of Death, but it retains the original Gamble With Time title that um, they were still calling it at that particular time. It, it's really sad because the BBC did hold a copy of David Fisher's original, and it was in the script. They used to have a script library many years ago, and we know that it was there. And in fact, uh, one issue of um, The Frame fanzine published an article that was based actually on that script um, and the fact that someone had sat there and written notes about the script. But unfortunately, when the script department closed down, that particular script never made it through to the written archives. So it obviously got dumped somewhere along the way. And sadly, David Fisher was one of those writers. Writers do tend to fall into one of two camps. You'll have the writers who keep everything and the writers who keep nothing. And David Fisher was one who 
pretty much kept nothing. Um, annoyingly, it, it, you know, people like Bob Baker was also someone who didn't keep anything. So any early drafts of uh, the scripts that he did um, with Dave Martin, they'd gone. Very surprisingly, having seen the inside of Terence Dix's study now, Terence kept nothing either. So, you know, there's there's lots of really nice things that we would love to have. But unfortunately, as far as we know, they don't exist anymore. So, oh. I am actually holding back the tears here, just to clarify. <laughs> of course, I'm not going to ask you for specifics, but I imagine that even as we speak, as you get ready to take Christmas holidays, you'll be working away on the next next set, next few sets. Yeah, it, it doesn't stop, Kenny. It really doesn't. As soon as you stop working on one, you start working on another. And in fact, I'm sure some of the guys, especially Peter, who you know does a lot of the processing of the episodes, of course, I'm sure he's working on multiple things at any one time. But it, it really is, uh, it, it just keeps going. It keeps chucking along. So as soon as you finish one thing, um, you are straight on to the next. Doing a schedule of three a year, which is what we're doing at the moment. Um, we did do four a year at one point, which I think was really about the sales department at BBC Studios wanting to get a foothold into this once they committed to it. So they wanted to have some product out there. Th- that was something that we all knew we couldn't sustain because it was that was just manic. That was just miles too exhausting for everyone. Even doing three a year, the timescales are really tight. And everyone, as they did with the DVD, you know, gives over and above what they're actually paid for. They do far more work than, you know, that they're actually being asked to do. Um, it, it really is a it really is a labour of love. But I think, with you know, as with all of these things, we all approach it in the same way that we want them to be the product that we want to go out and buy. You know, we don't want to be the ones who will go out and buy something and go, oh, dear, this could have been so much better. You know, we want to be in a position where people go, well, actually, there's not really much more you could do with this. So, yeah, you you finish one, you go straight on to another. So I have already, um, I was at Written Archive about four weeks ago going through the files for the next season that will be out, the first one for 2022. I'm currently in the middle of processing those documents, which in itself is a horrendously dull process, but it's got to be done. So in the process of doing that and gathering together all the bits and pieces. And of course, it's it's not just me as well. You know, we have, um, there are other people that I call on for for their individual help. So we have people like um, the lovely Chris Hill, in America, um, who has uh, absolutely an amazing Doctor Who collection. People might have seen it on his on his website, the Space Museum, some of the stuff he has. But Chris is so generous with everything that he has. You know, it really is open door with Chris. So it's Chris who sort of is able to provide all the new scans of the Radio Time stuff. Because I knew going into this, there was... Um, not only had we missed some off of the DVDs entirely, but there was also stuff that was in the Radio Times relating to various stories or around various periods that was never included in the in the PDFs that were were included on the DVDs. So we do all those from scratch. But there there are so many other people as well who have been sort of so kind and so open with what they have, because they, they I think they understand the mentality. They, they understand that you know we will really want these to be the very best product that we have. This is probably the last throw of the dice that we, we've got doing these now. Um, I can't see us revisiting these again. So, you know, we want to make them as good and the very best we can now because we probably won't get another chance. Apart from the 3D versions. Well, apart from those, obviously. <laughs> Nothing at the end of the lane, as you know, I'm a yeah. huge fan. Is there potential for any more or are you just too tied up with <laughs> with the Blu-ray stuff? I, I have been planning issue five for about the last three, four years. The trouble is the Blu-rays keep getting in the way. Every time I think I've got a window of availability to try and do something, there's another Blu-ray on the horizon and the process starts all over again. 
So my time trying to do stuff with nothing at the end of the lane has been diminished somewhat over the past few years. I have a list of content for the next one as long as you're on, some of which has already been written, some is in the process of being written, some is in the process of being uh, researched. It, it is taking a lot longer than I anticipated. I've got an article coming out, I think it's in the next Vought Vought magazine, which I, I said I'd do for them, which was about animated Doctor Who, looking at some of the plans that have been over the years that have not reached fruition for animated Doctor Who. And that just took an eternity to do because I was trying to do that along with with the, the Blu-ray stuff as well. So it, it was a, it's a bit of a nightmare juggling act. I mean, that, that article took me 18 months in the end to try and put together for them. And, you know, at the, at the end, I just had to sort of knuckle down and get it done because I promised that I would deliver it to them. So yes, there are certainly plans there for another one. And I do want to hurry up and get it done. But uh, yeah, the, the Blu-rays are, are the main reason, why, main reason why nothing has happened on that regard so far. Absolutely. And for those who haven't got the zine yet, which I hugely recommend, where can people order it from? Uh, they can go to the website, uh, which is www.endofthelane.co.uk. So there are still some copies of issue four, physical copies of issue four left. Not many. The stocks are, are well reduced down now. The other th- original three issues are all available as PDFs at a, at a much lower price, so you can uh, get those and read those to your heart's content. But hopefully it won't be too long before we, we have something new to put on there as well. Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thanks for, for joining us today. No problem at all, Kenny. A massive thanks to Richard. And again, I hugely recommend you check out Nothing at the End of the Lane and look at the website Richard just recommended. Talking of all things online and stuff, you can follow us on Twitter at Power of Three Pod. That's three with the number three. So that's our episode about season 17 on Blu-ray over and done with. And to play us out this week, we go with a rather fab track, which is appropriately enough called 17 Forever. It's by Metro Station. Until next week, we'll be back to chat about three Doctor Who Christmas specials. And until then, it's farewell from me, Kenny Smith. You